This Fordham Conversations is an encore presentation. It's one of the busiest places in the Bronx, stretching almost five miles from 138th Street all the way up to the Mashaloo Parkway. The Grand Concourse, built in the late 19th century, was once the epitome of luxury in New York City, and still has the largest number of Art Deco buildings in the world. I'm Chris Williams, and today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about the history of Grand Concourse, and some of the places along the boulevard you might not know about. First, I spoke with Lloyd Ultan, the Bronx Borough Historian, an official title he's had since 1996. Ultan has written several books about the Bronx, with a few more in the works. I was actually born in the Bronx. Uh, I've, uh, uh, and that was uh, three quarters of a century ago. <laughs> Um, and I grew up in the Bronx, and I have never lived anywhere else. Uh, although I've traveled, <laughs> traveled to different parts of the world, but I've never lived anywhere else but the Bronx. So what about the Bronx is it that has you so fascinated to kind of dedicate yourself to, to chronicling the history of it? Uh, well, I was always interested in history per se. Uh, even as a toddler, I was always asking people who were older than I was, you know, what happened before I was born? <laughs> and when I went to the, and I got a library card for the first time, and I went to the New York Public Library, the first book I ever took out was a history book. Um, I majored in history in college, and uh, after I had finished graduate school, I knew a lot about the history of the country and other countries, and I knew a lot about the history of the city of New York and the state of New York, but I knew nothing, absolutely nothing, about the history of the place where I was born, where I grew up, where I still live, which was the Bronx. Uh, then I uh, discovered there was a Bronx County Historical Society, and they had free public lectures. Oh, I figured the price was right, so I went to those lectures, and being professionally trained, uh, after a while, it dawned on me that the history of the Bronx was really the history of the nation in microcosm. Therefore, uh, every important movement, every important event that occurred in the history of the country at large also occurred in the Bronx, and therefore you could use the Bronx as a uh, laboratory. Uh, if the national historians give a reason why something happened, and I discover in the Bronx uh, that that reason doesn't hold, well, then you'd have to figure out why. Why is the Bronx different? So can you tell me a little bit about Grand Concourse and when it was built and why it was built? Sure. Uh, the story of the Grand Concourse starts uh, with a, uh, a guy who was an immigrant from Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, he came in the 1870s. His name was Louis A. Reese, R-I-S-S-E, uh, which would be pronounced Rissi in German, but he preferred the French pronunciation. Uh, he was a civil engineer, which of course meant he was very polite. Uh, and uh, he settled in the Bronx rather, uh, rather quickly. Uh, and according to his own account, uh, one day he went hunting, uh, and he saw in this distance uh, the, this, this, this ridge that was there, and he said that would make a you know, perfect point for a, uh, uh, for a highway. Now, you have to remember that at the time, the Bronx was overwhelmingly rural with scattered suburban villages, tiny suburban villages around there. What would you need a huge highway uh, on a ridge for? And a lot of people poo-pooed it and laughed at him, but he kept at it. Uh, by the early 1890s, 
uh, he had convinced the uh, city authorities that this thing should be built. And uh, in, in the 1890s, he started uh, drawing up plans on the city auspices in order to do this thing. He used as his model the Champs-Élysées, the uh, magnificent boulevard in Paris. And uh, in, they started uh, construction in 1901, and it was finished in 1909. So tell me a little bit about how, a little bit more about how the Grand Concourse was used at that time in the early years. Uh, in the early years, the, you have to remember, first of all, that the full name is the Grand Boulevard and Concourse. A boulevard is a place where people stroll, they walk. A concourse is where you have traffic. Now here is this wide thoroughfare, 182 feet wide. Uh, it had a center section and two side sections. As originally planned, the center section was dirt. The two side sections were the only parts that were paved. The reason why is that in the center section, that is where people could, uh, uh, the wealthy people, uh, who did this sort of thing in those days, they had their sulkies and their trotting horses, their own <laughs> trotting horses, and uh, they would uh, exercise them on this road. Uh, and uh, they would also take the opportunity to race against each other. Um, uh, the side roads, obviously, were meant to be uh, more utilitarian. That's why they were paved. Uh, however, uh, by the time you hit 1927, uh, you now have automobile traffic. And traffic has continued to a great extent. So can you talk a little bit more about the Art Deco aesthetic of, of, of the buildings up and down? Sure. Well, yeah, you have to understand that the first grand buildings uh, as apartment houses on the Grand Concourse were actually built in the 1920s before Art Deco became the rage in the United States. Uh, many of those buildings are eclectic styles. They borrowed uh, styles from Europe, uh, you know, Tudor, uh, Moorish, uh, uh, Renaissance, uh, you know, uh, uh, Spanish colonial, you know, all sorts of things that they would put in there. And the rooms were large, uh, and they attracted very wealthy people to live there, one of whom actually became a mayor of the city of New York. Uh, Joseph V. McKee, who became mayor of the city of New York when Jimmy Walker resigned. Uh, he was the next in line. And in those days, there was no Gracie Mansion where a mayor lived, and so they lived in their homes, and he lived in an apartment house on the Grand Concourse, and that became the residence of the mayor. So he lived in the Bronx while he was mayor of the city of New York. In 1933, the subway under the Grand Concourse was opened. And in 1933, you had this grand... Uh, Art Deco movement all over the place. And uh, with the subway, this attracted even more people to come to the Grand Concourse, and developers built brand new apartment houses for them. And of course, they were in the brand new style of the time. This would be the Art Deco style. And as a result, so many Art Deco style buildings were built on the Grand Concourse and its side streets uh, that today the Grand Concourse has the largest collection of Art Deco residences in the world. But you have some great examples of Art Deco style architecture, both interior and exterior, 
uh, on the Grand Concourse, and they attracted very wealthy people. Uh, in those days, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s, and sometimes the 60s, you had uniformed doormen uh, on the Grand Concourse. Uh, some of them were so wealthy that their kids had nannies <laughs> taking care of them. And some of these uh, uh, large apartments uh, have uh, small rooms where maids uh, would live and maids would live. Um, the, uh, it was all elegance. And, of course, uh, once it opened, the Grand Concourse also became the, uh, the parade route of the Bronx. Uh, you had all the major parades there. Uh, in those days, uh, Decoration Day, which became Memorial Day, uh, you know, July 4th, uh, uh, and uh, any other patriotic holiday, like Armistice Day, uh, which is today Veterans Day. <laughs> um, so, uh, and when presidents of the United States or people running for president, uh, they, uh, they came up the Grand Concourse. Uh, my earliest memory is from October 29th, 1940, sometime after 4 p.m. I know that because I remember it and I was able to look up when it happened. You can't miss this. Franklin Roosevelt came up the Grand Concourse, and I saw Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, but I also saw uh, Harry S. Truman on the Grand Concourse, uh, and I saw John F. Kennedy on the Grand Concourse twice. Uh, <laughs> so um, uh, it, it, it was, and it still is, a, uh, uh, an elegant boulevard. And indeed, uh, uh, in 2013, this year, the... Um, uh, the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission has declared uh, the Grand Concourse uh, from 153rd Street up to 167th Street as the Grand Concourse Historic District so that the, uh, the whole architectural ambiance of the Grand Concourse would be preserved. This is Chris Williams on 90.7 WFUV talking to Bronx Borough historian Lloyd Oltan about the history of Grand Concourse. Going back to what you said about um, the buildings and having doormen and live-in maids, it almost sounds like what we we would think of as Park Avenue or mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. So how has that changed? I mean, that's not like when I think of Grand Concourse, I don't think of it as Park Avenue. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, in those years, uh, in the middle part of the century, twentieth century, the Grand Concourse was considered to be the equivalent of Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue. Uh, in fact, uh, what we would today call yellow cabs, in those days they weren't just yellow, they were party colored. Uh, uh, you could walk to the sidewalk of the Grand Concourse, stick out your hand, and five cabs would stop. <laughs> um, uh, it was a place where wealthy people lived. Um, and uh, it, it added to the ambience. Now, of course, what happened is after World War II, um, uh, because of the war, you had rent control, and which later became rent stabilization, that limited the uh, income of uh, landlords, uh, where the price controls of World War II were eliminated. And so the landlords had more costs, and so they reduced, uh, and, but they had their income was frozen. So they had to find some means of, uh, uh, of somehow uh, making ends meet. 
And one of the ways you make ends meet is by getting rid of the doorman. <laughs> you can't open up the door yourself. And the uh, <laughs> um, they also had elevator operators, and uh, they, they 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 put in automatic elevators. So, you know, you had to press your button for your own floor uh, rather than have the elevator operator take care of that. So they, uh, they, they, they still had superintendents uh, to each of these buildings to take care of it, and they were well cared for, but, uh, you know, all of these little extra amenities sort of disappeared. Now, uh, at the same time, uh, many of the people living on the Grand Concourse grew older, and they, uh, they retired. Uh, many of them retired to the South Bronx. Uh, that's what I call Florida. Uh, and... Um, uh, you also had uh, other people who were younger who were joining the rest of the population of the United States in the move out of the cities into the suburbs. Um, you have to remember they had gone through the shortages of the Great Depression. Nobody could afford anything. And they had also gone through uh, uh, World War II where there were shortages because you couldn't buy anything. <laughs> there were all sorts of things that could not be manufactured because of the war effort. Suddenly, after 15 years of denial, they wanted to get something. And what am I going to get mine? And so they were now, you know, people had jobs all over the place. They were making money hand over fist. And, of course, a lot of these people, when Johnny came marching home, uh, you know, he wanted to have a nice life. And uh, so he got married. And, uh, you, you know, you couldn't get uh, an apartment on the Grand Concourse. They were all filled. Um, and so he moved out to the suburbs with his brand-new wife. And uh, so what happened was that uh, uh, when apartments eventually became available, you had uh, new immigrant groups or migrant groups coming in. In these cases, these would be blacks. Uh, from Harlem uh, and uh, Puerto Ricans from East Harlem, uh, some from the South, some from the island, uh, who came in and took their place. And these people uh, were appreciably poorer than the people uh, that they replaced. But they inherited all of the amenities that the, uh, uh, you know, that the wealthy had left behind. And these people uh, who came in uh, knew the history of the Grand Concourse, treasured it, and wanted it preserved, and they became the main pushers behind the creation of the Grand Concourse Historic District. How would you characterize the Grand Concourse today? How many of these Art Deco buildings are still standing? Are a majority of them, or are they all? I know you mentioned that it has the highest number in yeah. the world. Mm -hmm. um, so is that currently, or is that back then? No. Uh, it is currently. Not a single one of the Art Deco buildings on the Grand Concourse was destroyed. Um, and they are all inhabited. Some of them actually do have doormen now. They're not uniform doormen, <laughs> you know, and they stay in the lobby and just keeping an eye on things. Uh, but they, uh, you know, so you still have that amenity that has been provided really only in the past mm, 15 years or so. Um, so in a sense, the, uh, the tone in many of those apartment houses has gone up. Um, but the Grand Concourse was more than just a residential area, and it was primarily residential. Uh, when you get to the area around the 180s, Fordham Road and to Kingsbridge Road, uh, the Grand Concourse becomes very commercial. Uh, you have a lot of shops and stores and, uh, and places where people go there. One was a movie theater. 
located just south of 188th Street on the west side of the Grand Concourse, uh, called the Lowe's Paradise Theater. It opened up in 1929, and it cost Lowe's Incorporated $4 million to build. That's $4 million, $1929. Now, uh, the idea behind it was that it was an atmospheric theater, not just a movie palace, not an ordinary movie palace. <laughs> this was an atmospheric theater. The idea is that when you entered it, you would leave your everyday humdrum existence and enter into a world of fabulous opulence and wealth. So you would enter the theater uh, in a vestibule with a high ceiling and a huge chandelier with little niches in the wall that don't, didn't have statues there yet. Then you would enter into the lobby, the lobby, again, two stories high, um, and in the ceiling there was original paintings. The, uh, the upper part of the floor on the right-hand side as you were entering was basically a mirror so that it would reflect the light from the chandeliers coming down from the ceiling. And uh, below that, uh, against the wall, was a fountain uh, that poured water into a bowl in the shape of a conch shell, and in the conch shell was swimming live goldfish. Uh, ahead was the grand staircase that went up and then turned on a right angle to the balcony, which was a, um, uh, a terrace overlooking the floor below. But if you're on the lobby floor, which of course had a plush carpet, uh, you would turn left and there you would be facing five huge double doors. The double doors would open up and you would walk in immediately into the aisles that would lead to 4,000 seats in the theater, uh, both in the orchestra and in the balcony. Uh, as you were walking, you would see that the walls are covered with uh, statuary, all imitations of European masterpieces. And as your eye goes up, you see the ceiling is painted a dark blue with little pinpoints of electric light inside there simulating stars and floating beneath the ceiling, going as you are facing the screen from right to left, genuine, real clouds that were produced by a cloud machine that was located above the, uh, above the ceiling and below the roof. And somebody had to call in a call space to turn it on. Um, and who the heck watched the movie? Uh, <laughs> you would never forget that experience at all. Um, and indeed, you were taken, transported to some sort of fictional, ethereal <laughs> level uh, with it. And luckily, the theater still exists, mm -hmm. and it still survives, and it's an official landmark, both interior and exterior. Wasn't it closed for a number of years? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, uh, you have to remember that uh, with the advent of television, and then later with uh, DVDs and CDs and you know, all of the electronic stuff, um, the patronage for uh, motion pictures went down uh, in the last uh, quarter of the 20th century. Uh, it became impossible to uh, keep a 4,000-seat theater open uh, 
consequently, Lowe's Incorporated decided to twin the theater, the balcony becoming one theater and the, uh, the orchestra becoming another. Outrage, complete outrage all over the Bronx. How dare you do this thing to that theater? Well, uh, Lowe's Incorporated explained the economics behind it, but did say that we will twin it in such a way so that if anybody wants to restore the, um, uh, the, the single room, they can do so without any damage, and they were true to their word. But after a while, they also, they, they eventually triplexed it and then quadruplexed it because, again, you couldn't have uh, that many people there. Eventually, Lowe's Incorporated sold it uh, to a man who wanted to convert the whole thing into shops. And again, outrage on the part of a people all over the Bronx. How dare you? You can't do that. What year is this? Uh, this? This would be in the 1980s. And... Uh, one of the things that was done is that immediately uh, uh, an application was made to make uh, Lowe's Paradise Theater a landmark, and it was put on the calendar. And as long as the building is on the calendar, nobody can touch it. <laughs> so he couldn't do what he wanted to. But then along came a man who grew up in the uh, you know few blocks away in the neighborhood who loved the Paradise Theater, uh, who said, "Listen, I will rent the theater from you, but I want to renovate it." Uh, and so he, uh, he took out a two-year lease, and uh, immediately after signing the lease, people went in there, they renovated, restored it. He spent $12 million to restore it and still didn't complete the job completely. <laughs> I mean, uh, however, uh, when it was done, the guy refused to allow him to operate it. And the the guy sold it eventually to uh, guys who operated a uh, a nightclub in Westchester County who decided to put on uh, stage shows, um, you know, concerts, also boxing matches <laughs> on the stage, uh, and things like that. And eventually it was sold and sold again with the same thing. But uh, what has happened is that the latest purchaser uh, is a mega church. Um, uh, with a pastor who has a large, large following who could use that number of seats uh, for Saturday services, and so um, uh, that's what it is. Uh, that's what it is used for today. So the uh, the building is preserved and it is being used. Unfortunately, the only time you can see it now is if you go there for services. <laughs> <laughs> so it's closed every. It's not. It's they not, don't. It, they don't open it for tours or anything. I uh, have been trying somehow to get in contact uh, with the people who run it, saying that they could make some extra money on the side uh, to help defray the costs of the building by operating tours. And uh, but so far, I haven't had the opportunity because I simply can't get in contact with them. Before it was a church, I was able to get you know, some, uh, some tours in there that I led myself. But I always forgot to bring a plate along with me to catch the jaws of the people uh, as, as they looked and their jaws dropped. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, it's really spectacular. As a, a, a historian, obviously you look at the past a lot, but just you have an idea of where the Grand Concourse is going next, you know, what, what the future holds, what it'll, it'll be like, you know, maybe what we can expect to see in 20, 30 years from now. It's always difficult for anybody, uh, much less a historian, to predict the future. I always say I'm a historian. I look at the other direction. Uh, 
And I always say, you know, when I try to look at the future, my crystal ball is cracked. Uh, all you could do is to see what the trend is. And the trend is, uh, you know, the treasuring of, the, of, of what we already have there and trying to maintain it, um, to enhance it, uh, to keep it up as the elegant boulevard it was meant to be. And as far as I could see into the future, which admittedly is not very long, uh, I, I see that that trend is uh, very likely to continue. One famous resident of the Bronx was Edgar Allan Poe. His cottage is currently on Kingsbridge Road in Grand Concourse. Oltan says Poe lived in the house before the Grand Concourse was built. He moved to the Bronx in 1846, hoping the fresh air would cure his wife's tuberculosis. It didn't, and when she passed in 1847, Oltan says Poe was very lonely and often melancholy. Quite often he went over to uh, the campus of St. John's College, which is today Fordham University, and um, the Jesuits there knew who he was, of course, and they, they, they gave him the use of the library. Uh, but he would basically just sit there and like stare into space until uh, closing time. And one of the uh, Jesuit fathers came over to him and, you know, tapped him on the elbow and say, you know, come, Poe, uh, you have to go home now. A trip to Fordham University's library shed some more light on Poe's time in the area and a bell named Old Edgar, which is kept locked up in the library's archives. My name's Patrice Kane, and I'm the head of archives and special collections at the Fordham University Library. Now, the reason it's called Old Edgar is because Edgar Allan Poe lived a few blocks from Fordham. He frequented Fordham University. You might consider him as a visiting professor. That's what they liked to call him back then. He would hang out with the Jesuits. He liked hanging out at Fordham because he said the Jesuits liked to drink, smoke, and play cards, and they never discussed religion. He also really liked using the library. He was a very educated man, and he enjoyed coming over here and using the books. We are uh, absolutely sure. Many people say that it was the bells in Greenwich Village that inspired him to write his famous poem, The Bell. But given the fact that he lived here um, up until his death, he definitely heard our bells and Local folklore has it that it was the bells from the administration building that inspired him for that famous poem. So at that time, that was really the only bell around campus? That would have not only been the only bell around campus, that would have been the only bell in the Bronx. This was a farmland back then. Uh, there was a chapel in the administration building, and later we did have the church. He could have very well heard the church bell, but we're pretty sure that the bell that he heard is the original 1840 bell for St. John's College. What's interesting is that when Edgar Allan Poe was living at Fordham, he was renting that cottage, which we're all very familiar with up on Kingsbridge, from John Valentine, who owed a considerable amount of property in this area. Um, what I find kind of amusing is that his annual rent was $100. So that gave him a three-room cottage with um, an unheated attic on the second floor. And that's where he would allegedly sit and do his writing. And they said that he had a terrific view of um, the Bronx and also of the Long Island Hills. So it was a, you know, it was kind of a scenic little cottage there. And for $100 a year, it's not bad, considering what it would cost today to live there. So can you just tell me a little bit about the bell and how it came to Fordham? 
and a little bit of the history behind it? The original bell was minted in 1840, and it was a gift of Archbishop John Hughes for St. John's College, which is the original name of Fordham University. Um, the bell was in the administration building. It would ring several times a day for the change of classes, and um, that was pretty much the story. It, in 1890, the school got a new bell, and this bell uh, disappeared for about 50 years. It turned out that it had been sent up to a Jesuit seminary in Connecticut. People had lost track of it, but Maurice o. Ahern, the uh, original archivist from the 50s, he was able to track it down, and they had it shipped back here in about 1955. It then disappeared again, and it was discovered later in the ram shed. We used to have a live ram, who was our mascot, and it was kept in the ram shed, and nobody really knows why. When we moved the archives over to the Walsh Library in 1997, it came over here, and I have it now in the vault. So where did the name come from, Old Edgar? When, when did it start going by that name? You know, I'm not really sure when they started calling it that. I would imagine it came after 1955 when it was rediscovered. Um, part of the reason that they were determined to get it back was because of the connection to Edgar Allan Poe. So I believe that official name, up until, up until 1890, it was called the Student Bell. But in recent history, it's been changed to Old Edgar. My thanks to Lloyd Oltan and Patrice Kane for talking to me about Grand Concourse and its history. You can also like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay tuned, George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.